There's no denying that the death of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in September was an opportunity that the Trump administration, along with every supporter in and outside the political arena, would seize with both hands. With dizzying speed, the Notre Dame law professor Amy Coney Barrett, the ideological negation of Ginsburg, was chosen as her replacement, appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee and was then appointed to the High Court by a vote along strictly party lines. There's now a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. Five of the six are Catholics and they have Roe versus Wade clearly in their sights. Erwin Chemerinsky is a leading constitutional scholar, the founding dean of the Irvine School of Law and now Dean of Law at UC Berkeley. Among his best known books are Understanding the Constitution, The Conservative Attack on the Constitution and The Case Against the Supreme Court. It was an op-ed he wrote for the LA Times this past November that caught my eye on the subject of a speech given by Justice Samuel Alito to the Conservative Federalist Society, in which he laid out a number of issues that he was very concerned about. Um, in particular, the question, as he's put it, of the freedom of religion. We began our conversation about the meaning of originalism, the ideological basis of the conservative majority. Original is the view that the meaning of a constitutional provision is fixed when it's adopted. The meaning can be changed only by an amendment. So the text of the constitution that was adopted in 1787 means the same thing today as then. That the first amendment which was ratified in 1791 means the same thing today as then. That the 14th amendment means the same thing as was adopted in 1868 that only the amendment process can change the meaning of a constitutional provision, that the task of the justice or a judge or a lawyer or a commentator is to ascertain that original public meaning of a provision. Second question you asked me is, when did originalism really begin? I think it's in the early 1970s. Um, Robert Bork in an article in the Indiana Law Review in 1971 put this forward. Raul Berger, who was a professor at Harvard, put this forward around the same time. But you really don't find originalism as an identifiable theory much before that. It took off after 1973 as a way for conservatives to criticize Roe versus Wade. Your third question is, did the framers intend originalism? There was a very elegant article by Jeff Powell in the Harvard Law Review 30 some years ago titled The Original Understanding of Original Understanding, in which he argued that the framers didn't intend that their views would be controlling. James Madison took the notes at the Constitutional Convention and he instructed that they not be published or revealed until after his death because he wanted the Constitution to stand on its own. So there's no indication that the framers wanted originalism to control. On the other hand, the way the framers thought of interpretation is so different than the way we would approach it today. They, like those of their generation, really believed that there was a natural law that was out there for courts to discover. The First Amendment guarantees freedom of religion, speech and assembly. The 14th abolishes slavery. That was in 1868, I think. And such amendments mean today what they meant when written. But that did not mean that the founders believed they had full ownership 
of such provisions, they did not claim lasting control of the language chosen to define those provisions. More important than the words themselves is the intent behind the words. There is in short a strong sense the founders were fully aware that the world would change over the years and centuries even, and that the law would have to change with it. We moved on to the speech that Justice Alito recently gave to the conservative legal advocacy group, the Federalist Society. And this was the subject of Dean Shemarinsky's op-ed recently in the LA Times. The Federalist Society is a very conservative organization. It's a very well-funded organization. And it is a gathering place for conservative judges and law professors and lawyers and law students. It has had a very significant role during the Trump administration in putting forth and vetting nominees for federal district court, court of appeals and Supreme Court positions. You're right that Justice Alito in late November, just a few weeks ago, gave an astounding speech by video to the Federalist Society. So it wasn't like it was a private gathering of a small number of people. And usually justices don't express their views about matters that are pending or likely to come before the Supreme Court. Justice Alito did that on many issues in that speech. There was also a very aggrieved tone to the speech about how conservatives and especially religious conservatives are being persecuted. Chemerinsky noted the aggrieved tone of Justice Alito in his, throughout his address, notably on the theme of what he deemed religious persecution. Since then, with Justice Coney Barrett seated on the court, the conservative majority has come into its own and has recently sided with the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn against the state of New York on this question of keeping churches open for religious services during this pandemic. The balance of the court has clearly shifted, so now it does not matter whether or not Justice, Chief Justice Roberts occasionally sides with the uh, liberal justices to his left. The conservative majority will still hold five to four. First, in a couple of cases in May and July, the Supreme Court five to four upheld governor's restrictive closure orders as applied to religious institutions. One was from California and one was from Nevada. In both of those cases, the five ruling in favor of the governors and against the churches were Roberts, Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Tom Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh dissented. Alito in his speech was explicitly critical of those decisions and especially the one from Nevada. And he, the time he spoke, there was another case pending before the court on the same exact issue from New York. And to me, it was astounding that he would talk about a matter that was on his docket while it was pending. And then on November 25th, just before midnight on the night before Thanksgiving, the Supreme Court five to four ruled against Governor Cuomo in his restrictive order enrolled in favor of the Archdiocese of Brooklyn and some synagogues. The majority was Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. Roberts, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan dissented. As you say, this is the first instance where we've seen a concrete shift in the court from Ginsburg to Barrett. 
Second, there is this underlying issue of to what extent should people be able to get an exception from a general law on account of their religious beliefs? In 1990, in an opinion by Justice Scalia, the court said, we don't give exceptions on grounds of free exercise to religion to general laws. But there was in 2018, the Masterpiece Cake versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission, where a baker wanted an exception from a Colorado law that prohibits sexual orientation discrimination. The baker didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. There's a case now pending before the Supreme Court in which Catholic Social Services wants to be able to contract to place children in foster care, even won't do so with same-sex couples. So there is this issue of to what extent are we going to give exceptions to general laws on account of religious beliefs? And I think now we have five justices who are going to be inclined to do that, which previously we didn't have it. We move back to the influence of the Federalist Society, and in particular, to its head, Leonard Leo, a relatively unknown public figure, a sort of eminence grise, who behind the scenes has exercised a disproportionate role in the selection of Supreme Court justices from the George W. Bush presidency until today. Chemerinsky emphasizes that Leo's role is not really about religion, even though he is a conservative Catholic, but about a single political issue and the attraction of votes for the Republican Party. Leonard Leo is the longtime head of the Federal Society. He has been tremendously successful in raising money for it and in making sure that it is great influence, especially the guard judicial selection. Second, in terms of the religious composition of the court, there are seven Catholic justices right now. Actually, Justice Gorsuch was raised Catholic, but is Episcopalian, okay. and two Jewish justices, Breyer and Kagan. Now, I want to be clear and explicit. No one should ever be rejected or chosen for a position on the Supreme Court on account of his or religion. I don't object in principle to the number of Catholic or the number of Jewish justices. I don't think there should be quotas for religion. But I do think it's worth asking, how did we get to this position? How is it that every recent pick by a Republican president for the Supreme Court has been a Catholic? I think it's all about abortion. The Republican base cares a great deal about judicial selection, and the Republican base is fervently anti-abortion. I think presidents, President George W. Bush, President Donald Trump, have wanted to signal to their base that they're picking anti-abortion individuals. And by picking Catholic justices, especially about devout Catholic justices like Amy Coney Barrett, it gives that signal to the base. The issue of Roe versus Wade and a woman's right to abortion will come up fairly early in this current session of the court. Will the justices continue to rule by chipping away at this right, a death by a thousand cuts? Or will they do away with Roe versus Wade with one final blow? Dean Chemerinsky fears the worst. I don't yeah. think it's gonna be the death by a thousand cuts. I think it's gonna be a flat out overruling of the decision. It's what conservatives have wanted for decades and now they have their staunch majority on the court. In answer to a question about what we might expect from the court in the years to come, 
Chemerinsky could not offer a very bright future. He referred to the relative youth of recent appointees in their late 40s and early or mid 50s. They could be settling the country's laws for the next 30 or 40 years. I think what the court does will be reasonable, but it's going to be a very conservative court. Yes. Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett are far to the right of center. Will there be the occasional case where the three liberal justices can get two votes? Yes, but it's not going to happen very often, and it's not going to happen in those high-profile situations. This is the crowning achievement of a conservative movement that really can be traced to Richard Nixon in 1968 saying he was running against the Warren court and he wanted to replace the liberal justices with conservative ones. Now Republicans have succeeded in that. And maybe I can just conclude by saying it's going to last for a long time. Amy Coney Barrett is 48 years old. If she remains on the court until she's 87, the age was Justice Ginsburg died. Barrett will be a Supreme Court justice into the year 2059. Neil Gorsuch is 53, but Kavanaugh is 55, John Roberts is 65, Samuel Alito is 70, Clarence Thomas is 72. Easy yeah. to imagine these justices being together another decade or two. The picture presented by the current composition of the court is far from a liberal or a pre- is is from a liberal or a progressive point of view, rather bleak, much sunnier if you're a conservative. In a word, it's a mirror of the country's divide. A dwindling, church-going, white majority will feel comforted and protected. A rather larger portion of the American population, less prosperous and less privileged, and may we say much more racially diverse, will feel far less protected. We must hope that the court majority will show occasional signs of reasonableness on specific issues. But this is not a time for unqualified optimism. And this is Harry Lawton reporting for KCSV.